welcome to the latest. Oh, no, it's just starting. <laughs> hey, welcome to the latest Elixir Roundtable. <laughs> I'm Nathan. I'm a senior software engineer at Dockyard. I'm Brian. I'm the founder of Dockyard. Mike Ben's a senior software engineer at Dockyard. I'm Gustavo. I'm a senior software engineer at Dockyard. Awesome. Um, so I'm glad to have Gustavo on. He's he's uh, uh, one of the newest members of our team and uh, special guest. Yeah, already doing some awesome work on the project that I work on, which is top secret, so I won't say what it is. Um, but I do want to talk about something that I I recently did in our project, and um, and saw some big performance improvement that's database related. So and I love I love the database, so I love talking about this stuff. Um, so specifically, I want to talk about um, using things like materialized views in, in databases to improve performance. Um, so I'm not I can't talk about the specifics of our project, so I'm just going to make kind of make up an example that's similar. But I did see a like huge improvement <laughs> from the, like going from can't basically can't run this query to then being able to run it in like instantaneously, basically. Um, and this approach is um, Leaning on the database to do what it does best, which I think fits with the Ecto philosophy. You know, we have like uh, things like uniqueness constraints and foreign key constraints. Ecto leans on Postgres in the in the cases that I'm using it to do that, um, enforce that, which only the database can do properly, and just kind of like provide nice error messages around it. So, so let's say you and you guys jump in anytime and like uh, and and say anything you want to say, but. So for my made-up example, let's so Is this going to be summed up as it turns out the database is actually fast and the app layer is not? <laughs> uh, not exactly. Yeah, okay. uh, it, the, 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 other, the real spoiler would be like, don't repeat your work right, <laughs> any right. more than you have to. Um, so let's say you have, to, you have like a game and you need to show some kind of like summary of scores, right? It's, it's an, it's, um, you have a lot of different kinds of events that can affect a player's score, and those are stored in different tables. And so to show a player's current score, you have to do a lot of joins. Um, and if you want to get the scores for all players, you've got to like do queries over the history of all events for all time. So one of like the, the easiest and the most obvious approach is just to just write a big fat query and run it every single time you load the scores page. But that can look ugly in application code. Um, but more importantly, it's it's just going to be really slow. And it's going to get slower the more events you have in history. So just every day you're getting more events, and it's just getting slower and slower. <clears throat> so another approach would be to denormalize the data. So the, the denormalize the canonical representation of the data. So like, for example, shove all kinds of game events into one events table. And then you have a bunch of different columns. Like, let's say it's a civilization-style game, and you have like, a uh, battle type column and like a discovery type column and like some you know that's going to be null on some events and filled in on other events and that's really inefficient in space it doesn't let you use not null constraints so you don't really have good guarantees about what's there um, it can make other kinds of queries hard it can lead to consistency issues like we'll say you store the name of the game if the game has a name you store the name of the game on every event and then like oh we need to rename the game you got to go back to every event and change that value so it's just it's not a good approach to do normalize that way. Um, so another way would be to create a database view where you have a scores. It looks like a scores table, but if it's just a plain view, 
like you can you can just do select score from scores where user ID equals five or whatever. But if it's just a plain view underneath, it's really just doing that giant query. So it's just still going to be getting slower and slower. All right, so now we're getting into like, oh, and um, there are other things like temporary tables and common table expressions that are basically the same thing. You can add indexes on a temporary table, but you're going to be setting it up on every session or every transaction. Um, so now, like the the getting closer to the solution I did was a, a materialized view. A materialized view, you run the query ahead of time, and it stores that in a, in a table. Um, so you write you write this big query, and then you say um, refresh whenever you want it to refresh, and it goes back and requeries the whole history of the events and updates that table, and then you can just query from it, and it's really fast. Um, so that's cool, except that you have to decide when you want to refresh. So if you don't refresh very often, then the data is going to be stale. If you refresh too often, then you're still incurring that performance hit all the time of requerying the whole history. And then like, do you want to refresh on a timer? Do you want to refresh on a trigger? Or, <laughs> you know, like it, there's a lot of things to figure out there and trade-offs to make. So the the approach that I, I landed on is actually one that I, I got to give a shout out to. Um, there was a blog post from back in 2015 on the HashRocket blog called Materialized View Strategies Using Postgres. Um, by, and it's by Jack Christensen. And it was really good and, and kind of helped me figure out this way of doing things. Um, so the approach here is to basically roll your own materialized view. So the materialized view being, it's a table. It's got the end result of doing all your calculations. But a, a typical, just like a, declaring a materialized view in the database, every time you refresh it, it recalculates the whole history of everything to come up with the current scores. So this approach is you just make a plain table. You make a plain scores table. And then whenever you get a new event, you use a database trigger to recalculate just the scores for that one user. So what event, an event comes in for one user, and you're like, oh, OK, I need to go to that user's row in that table and update it with their latest score. And that way, you never have to do that, go back through all of history and do everything again. Um, and this is really fast at query time because it's just a table. The data is all there. Um, it, the downside is that you're adding some work at insertion time. When that trigger fires, you have to do the work of calculating for that, that user. That's probably OK because you're just calculating for one person and not for uh, everybody for, for all time. Um, but if that turns out to be too expensive, there's a couple different things you could do. You could, um, instead of doing the expensive calculation right then, you could just insert like an update job and then get to that when you can. So then you, you've got a little staleness issues maybe, but you can decide like how aggressively you want to work that job queue. Um, it's like, you know, trade off freshness for, for work. Um, and then another option would be, it could be that calculating a single row gets slower over time. So that depends on sort of the, the, the shape of your data. If you're calculating scores per game, that's not going to be the case because the game is going to end and it won't be accumulating any more events. But if you're calculating scores for a player that, that takes into account their whole history, they're getting more and more events. So you could do something like um, have an intermediate step where you you create game scores as a materialized view, and then the player scores are just summing their games. Or you could have like end of month scores that you calculate and then just like diff from the latest end of month. There's a lot of different ways you could go about that so that 
again, you're not repeating too much work. All right, so I'm almost done, but just to just to kind of like put a bow on this, this is actually really similar. Triggers, database triggers are really similar to callbacks, <laughs> which you know, in coming from a Ruby background with Active Record, I've seen Active Record callbacks get really nasty in some cases, um, like circular and horrible, <laughs> uh, and um, like cause really like financially bad consequences with bugs. Um, but the way this is different, and Scott Hamilton, our colleague who was going to be on here, but he put this really nicely. He said, this is just this is just the database keeping the database consistent. I like that way of putting it, because you've got the denormalized data based on the canonical representation of the data. And the data is just the database is just making sure that those two things are consistent all the time. Um, so that, that's really letting it do what it does best. It's really different from a callback like, Every time I create a user, send an email. And then you're like, oh, crap. What if I don't want to send that email sometimes when I create a user? And it just gets messy. So, But some similar guidelines apply to both of these things. I think keep the logic simple, um, just like you would in an active record callback. Try to keep it simple in a trigger, especially because DB logic is harder to debug. You don't get like stack traces and error tracking if something goes wrong. Um, use this sparingly. Do it only when you can prove a performance need and try to avoid chaining uh, triggers if you can help it, even though <laughs> my last example kind of did talk about that. Um, a whole different approach could be like stepping away from the database and caching some data in the application, but then you have like possibility of different nodes getting out of sync and stuff. So I, I think this is, in most cases, best to lean on the application for this kind of stuff. All right, I talked a long time. That's That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> I'll, I'll add to it that every time I dig into like some of the um, non-common things in Postgres for performance optimizations, it's always a fun engineering task to do so. Like it's always rewarding, like turning something that is slow into something fast and the amount of ways that you can optimize uh, the database with Postgres, I mean, there it's a good good reason why the role of DBA exists. I mean, there's so much that we're just exposed to on the service level as application engineers that database administrators uh, take for granted. Um, it's a uh, it's an incredibly deep system, and it's it can be a bit overwhelming at times too. Kind of digging into and finding these. Uh, these edge case performance uh, improvements in Postgres, but that's part of the reason why I like Postgres is like how much thought and how much depth there is to it as a DB layer. Yeah, absolutely. There is, there's just so much there. Uh, <laughs> I remember hearing about somebody who was like, I'm going to read one page of the Postgres manual a day. <laughs> and I thought that sounds like a good idea because there's a lot in it. Um, what, one thing maybe to mention also is like how to, how I figured out what to do here was um, I had a really slow page and I, I, I couldn't tell exactly what was going on. And then I turned on query logging. First off, I downloaded that we didn't this the, the issue didn't really come up until we were using production data. It was fine in development, but with production data we had enough data that it was an issue. So I, I pulled down yeah, that's the production a good, data. How large was the production database? Uh I don't have any numbers off the top of my head. Gigabytes. Yeah, it's not it's not really that huge, but just the the complexity of the query was more the issue. There was a right. lot of joins, and and what I found with 
I pulled it down and then I turned on query logging in, in Postgres and went to the Postgres query log. And then I did an explain on that query. And Postgres was like, yeah, I'm trying to, like with all the joins, I'm trying to do stuff with five quintillion rows of data. And I was like, yeah, that would be why it's slow. <laughs> I didn't even know the name of that number. I had to go look it up. So, um, and part of that was the way the query was written. It was, I could, I was able to flatten it out some and make that a lot better, but it still took a couple seconds to run. Um, so it was, it was still too much to do in a request cycle. But um, I find the explain, explain query thing in Postgres, the output is for me really hard to read, but just seeing that many rows, I knew something was very wrong and the cost was just astronomical. Um, so uh, like, I can't, I can't parse everything it's telling me, but I can I can get the big picture, and then I can run it again on a, new, a different query and say, oh, that's cheaper. So, um, so that that's at least a, a basic tool. I think also that it's like clearer to delegate that to Postgres because they are going to do a better job than you always. So if you could delegate that and use the triggers to take something and just like, hey, whenever this happened, run that function and you are the best at doing that. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's that's awesome. Is this one of those situations where you know you uh, you know put in all this time and then you, you create this super fast query and then the stand up next day like, you announced it and everyone's like that's nice. Moving on to the next thing. <laughs> there is like the the impact of it is uh, sometimes I find from the implementing engineer's perspective much greater than like you know especially management uh, for the project. Sometimes they don't appreciate the um, uh, I guess how, how rewarding some of those things can be. Yeah, I think this was I think this was appreciated, but yeah, I've definitely seen that like. Sometimes things like perf improvements are sometimes not, they're not as splashy as a big feature, but yeah, less, less money's tied directly to it. Yeah. But ultimately they are what makes the application good because yeah. if it's too slow, it's nobody wants it. Right. It's a user experience concern. So, Mike, you have a, a topic I know that you want to talk about. You want to want to pick that up? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just something I've been been working on over the past past uh, month or two. Um, I was actually tracing back in our our uh, Elixir chat uh, chat room in at Dockyard, and uh, I got, I realized uh, Brian Brian brought this up uh, about two months ago or a month and a half ago, but uh, just pointing out talking about COBOL and how um, there's so much that in our in our uh, world right now that runs on COBOL uh, still, and it's all you know. A lot of it's like you know, 60 years old. Some some crazy amount, you know, uh, ATMs and banks and and all that. Um, and so I, I kind of had a, a little bit of a crazy thought, um, and uh, I basically said, you know, hypothetically. Uh, how hard would it actually be to write an Elixir app that parsed COBOL and output equivalent Elixir? Because um, there was there was talk about you know possibly looking at you know could you take COBOL and and 
compile it down so it can it could run on on Beam, you know, whatever. Some some sort of a couple different approaches at it, but um, with some of the the work that I've done with with uh, Credo and some other things as far as parsing parsing languages and and uh, being able to uh, convert to to Elixir, um, I thought you know what may as well just take a shot at it, right? It might work, might not. Um, and we've got you know, Docker Fridays to to do these sort of experimental stuff. So uh, dove in. I've uh, never written or seen COBOL uh, before that conversation, but um, you know, so yeah, I figured why not? So grabbed went on watched like a you know everything you need to know about COBOL and in one video thing and spent a couple hours watching that and like learning the basics um, and how, how it, uh, it flows, but all with a, with a mind towards, you know, what would this look like in Elixir? What would a, a, uh, a comparable set of code look like? Uh, you know, what sort of issues are we going to run into? Um, you know, immutability is obviously one thing that's, that uh, you deal with if you're writing Elixir that you don't with COBOL. So there's, there's potentially some, I figured, I figured there's probably, I'm probably going to run into something, like foundational that it just won't work at all uh but i figured it was, it was worth a shot uh so sorry so in other words mike is now dockyard's lead cobol engineer and dockyard accepting <laughs> cobol contracts <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's, no this is where no. you're supposed to say dockyard is now a cobol consultancy yeah, yeah right. dockyard's yeah, exactly. now cobol consultant new cobol yeah, no 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 definitely not so here's the thing is is i realize a, that there could be some major fundamental thing, and I'm, I'm sure there might still be that where this just won't isn't even feasible. Um, but also that you know if we're if we're uh, converting uh, COBOL code to Elixir code, it's probably going to be like an 80-20 sort of thing. Like we can get most of the way there automated with some, with uh, translate translating stuff. Um, but that might be a start, and that might be enough to uh, to get to get uh, you know if, if there's someone if there's companies or, or there's a lot of government organizations out there that are that are hoping to get move off of cobol to something more modern that they can actually find people to develop on this might be a first step that might, that kind of takes the edge off to try to uh take that first step you know and, and you know we run we can run this and we got a set of code and all right let's look at what what came out of it and what it actually does and uh and uh yeah. So anyway, again, very exper experimental. So been working on that for the past month, month or month and a half, um, and getting close to me being ready to to release what I have so far. Uh, I've got the basics of parsing the parsing code, and it's got a it's got a, a tokenizer that just goes through and and makes sure that ident it can identify everything. A parser that takes that the tokenized version and turns it into. Uh, a module that has all the information uh, that we need to then turn it into the pass it on to the uh, elixirizer, for lack of a better term, that will take that parse thing and, and write elixir. Uh, so have that up and running with, you know, uh, some of the basics, data uh, calling procedures and um, input output, uh, accepting data and, and uh, writing it out to the console. And then I uh, got a testing framework up and running. So you can, the, the test helpers allow you to take a section of, co uh, uh, take a COBOL text program uh, and run it through and it will compile it 
into COBOL and then run the COBOL, given some inputs uh, optionally, and give you the output of that COBOL code. And then it will run the, the converter, generate Elixir code, uh, load that code into memory into the Elixir uh, or into the beam on the fly, execute that code again uh, to send inputs and get the output, and then unload it from the from the beam, and then compare the output. So we can say, hey, you know, we have this Elixir or we have this COBOL code, run it and get the output, and then run it in Elixir and get the output and make sure that they're the same. Yeah. Uh, so that that's that framework's in, which I think will be super helpful in in make in allowing us to move forward faster with the rest of the stuff. Um, and a couple more I think, things I want to. I was going to say, I think it's important to note too that uh, Mike's implementing GNU COBOL because um, there's so many variants of COBOL right. out there, and on the the complexity of this is uh, starts to get a bit hairy when you start to also consider that some of these. Um, potential consumers of COBOL are not only using maybe a proprietary IBM version of COBOL, but also a like their own specialized fork of it that does specifically what they want. So, like the hope is that um, the GNU COBOL will cover like a majority of of what you'd see, and then probably there may have to be some uh, specialized effort to cover the remainder of what's uncovered for that given project. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, and that—that's um, you know that 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 might be the thing that you know as far as how how different the the languages are, you know we can obviously that you'd be able to modify this code to to adapt to that, or we just run it and we it's a best effort and we get close and then we go and look at the output and compare it to the input and say hey you know did it get it right and like you know this line that you know uh, the our version wasn't able to understand what you meant here go back and you know verify and make sure it's it's good but yeah um again like i said very very highly experimental stage um but hopefully i'll have that out in the next um next couple of weeks uh for someone to jump in so yeah if you're out there and you uh you know cobol and elixir um uh reach out and uh love to love to chat uh and uh get your thoughts yeah the um the advantage too to potential uh, projects for this is, I mean, the obvious one first is that COBOL engineers are becoming fewer and far between. Um, I mean, we saw, especially around the year 2000, where everyone's like, oh, we need COBOL engineers because our system only covers like a two year digit rather than a, sorry, a two, two digit year rather than a four digit year. Um, but on top of that, um, most of these places where COBOL is installed to, um, a lot of the value propositions of Elixir fit naturally in those systems, right? They want, they need a certain amount of guaranteed uptime. They need like some sort of self-healing system in place. Like th these are things that, you know, governments and uh, banks and such values of a programming language that they should be looking into and in investing in. Trouble for them though is that the their COBOL systems are so kind of uh, uh, you know just have been there for so long that they're trusting them to do what they do that the cost the 
the cost of replacing the systems are sometimes much higher than um, they'd be willing to otherwise <clears throat> accept. So part of the idea here is that you can reduce the costs if you're just transpiling the COBOL into Elixir and that should accelerate the, uh, the rewrite to a certain degree and also make it an iterative approach, right? Rather than just saying, hey, okay, we need someone that has the whole domain knowledge of what this system does in the room with us while we architect out the new, you know, the new implementation of this. Um, so I, I think that there are a lot of uh, uh, benefits back to companies that adopt this approach. The obvious kind of issue though, is that we need to find the first adopter, right? Like no one wants to be the first one. Um, and so we're gonna probably spend some time uh, identifying some uh, uh, open source projects that are built in GNU COBOL attempt those as a as a rewrite because I think I, we found one already or maybe I pointed you towards a uh, a chat board of the GNU COBOL group and I think some people recommended a few. Um, I think if we have those non-trivial open source projects that are converting over, then we have some data to work off of, right? We say, oh, you know, we took this um fairly complex COBOL program and we were able to rewrite it in Elixir like this fast um that should give us enough to go and maybe shop this around to some potential early adopters but I'm I'm kind of hoping that once this proves out for a few systems then it's just a really a matter of you know going and shopping around um that that's really all it takes it takes trust you know for those type of systems in order for them to accept so okay maybe it's time to bite bite this off the other the other thing with this too with the timing of such is that um the the president's uh infrastructure plan um the two trillion or three trillion dollar i don't know what the dollar amount was for the plan but it includes uh, massive government agency upgrades for digital systems so there is a uh, significant portion of that infrastructure plan that is dedicating towards potentially moving them off of these legacy COBOL systems. So if, uh, uh, I, don't, I have no idea what the state of that infrastructure plan will be after it goes through the committees and finally makes it back to Biden's desk, but uh, presumably there will be um, budget in those, uh, in that plan at some point in the next year or so for this type of effort. So it could be, the timing could work out well where if this is ready now, there's gonna be uh, receptive parties within the government for uh, for rewrites. Yeah, um, a couple of things that I wanted to say. One, Mike, that's just super impressive. <laughs> it's awesome that you're doing that. It's awesome that you were just like, yeah, I'll do that. and you've already got something that far, that's really cool. Another thing is like, I know sometimes that people that are still running old systems like that are kind of the brunt of jokes, but I think we can all sympathize with like, it's 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 really a big deal to rewrite a system and not wanting to pay that cost is totally understandable. And then not paying that cost for a number of years, or maybe not even having the budget to pay that cost, eventually it becomes more and more expensive. So it's, it's a tough position to be in. So I think this is a really cool, idea um, that could be helpful. Uh, another thing is um, 
if, if somebody happens to be listening to this who is interested in this, like has a COBOL system, why are we talking about doing this to Elixir, this crazy language that you've never heard of? Um, so Elixir is just, um, Elixir is basically a nice user-friendly, um, more productive shell on top of Erlang. And Erlang is long-lived, battle-tested, going back to the 80s, running telecom systems, very, very reliable, um, just, just so somebody has that background. And one other thing that makes Elixir slash the Erlang virtual machine a good fit here is um, I think a lot of these systems, like if I'm specifically thinking of banks, American banking systems are kind of notorious for being like slow. <laughs> you know, you do a transaction, it's like that transaction will show up tomorrow <laughs> or whatever, you know. Um, and, and really to modernize, you want real-time kind of features. Like wouldn't it be awesome if every time a transaction happened, you would get a notification and you would approve or deny it. You know, like fraud would be impossible. Um, you'd be standing there at the cash register like, yes, this is me. Um, and, and that kind of stuff exists in other countries. So those kinds of features, like real-time features, are, are just an excellent fit for the Erlang virtual machine and for Elixir. Um, so so this, that's why we, this would be a good target to, to convert to. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there's, um, uh, there's a lot of unrealized upside to uh, um, that these systems are kind of held back by in their current, uh, you know, where they are technologically. So um, whether it's Erlang or more or, or different, more mod modern language, um, they could benefit from it. It's always a um, legacy industries are slow to adopt newer technologies. However, historically speaking, but again, like I said, I like the hope is that if we find some uh some willing early adopters that the success stories will speak for themselves yeah definitely to to go off of what uh what nathan said that was that was kind of what got me it made it click click for me and kind of got me excited about the the potential here is that the the parallels between cobalt being around forever and it just works and um you know trusted and and, and all that and and Erlang and just the 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 uh, that you know been around like I said been around for thirty how many how many years now, um, and uh, just the systems that run it are just rock solid and there, there's a real real uh, real uh, similarity there that makes makes Elixir the kind of the the language that makes sense to go to if you're if you're moving from a a COBOL system that still needs the COBOL benefits of that, that uh, Erlang provide, and just what, what can we do to help that? And, and uh, if you know, with with NX, um, Elixir is becoming kind of like a potential go-to for for people that are doing machine learning, and you know, maybe this is this this will allow Elixir to become a potential go-to for people that are uh, running COBOL systems. And just uh, how can we how can we help that make that a uh, make Elixir more attractive to more more different areas? Uh, because it is, it is so great, and uh, you know, the more people that, more people that are in on it, the, the better. Yeah, Elixir is also pretty unique among languages in having so many different um, areas where it can be useful. So machine learning is pretty new um, for Elixir, but also we've got you know a hardware platform and nerves. Um, we've got um, the. The whole uh, me like membrane is like a, a, a streaming platform. It's like a very different domain to be in. 
there's a lot of different domains that it serves very well, um, unlike some languages that are, that are pretty much only good for a very narrow set of applications. So if somebody, were, if somebody were converting a system over, they could, I mean, you know, hardware that, that's part of your system could also be in the same language. It seemed like an opening to bring up my topic. Okay. So I was going to talk about machine learning. Um, and um, <clears throat> just the, uh, I've been following the machine learning channel. For those that are, are don't know, um, there is the NX channel on the Elixir Slack. But um, once the machine learning uh, group opened up on the EEF, most of the discussions moved over there. So for if you, the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation is kind of like the, uh, it's not really a governing body, but it's more kind of an oversight body over all things happening in Erlang. Um, they're kind of charged with helping promote the language, the ecosystem, and uh, in some cases, uh, coordinating efforts between uh, different groups that are having similar goals. Um, and hopefully to the point eventually where some projects will start to see receive um, like financial support through the EF. That may already be happening in some cases, but I'm not aware of any. Um, in any event, um, after uh, Jose and Sean announced the um, EXLA project, uh, the NX project rather on, um, I forget which podcast it was that Jose went on, maybe thinking Elixir, I may be speaking out of turn. Definitely not this podcast, but it was a different one. Um, uh, it seemed like that maybe it was already going in place, but a, a machine learning um, group opened up in the EF and most of the conversation, like I said, moved over there. So if you're interested in kind of watching that happen, you should go onto the EF website. Um, you apply for a membership, which is free. And uh, then you can get access to the Slack and it's just in the um, pound machine dash learning channel. So uh, a couple of things that I've noted um, that's going on over there is number one, things are moving very, very fast uh, in that space, which is really cool to see. Um, it's really, uh, I think it is in part due to kind of the foundations that they laid that doing these additional feature developments have proven to uh, happen much faster because they have the primitives of what they've done are um, are pretty solid. So building on top of those primitives are not like having to, you know, rework quite a bit of the of the uh, of the library. But seeing Sean and Jose and uh, where else maybe involved in the conversation discuss about a potential new feature, and then seeing Sean like push it a day later is pretty impressive. Um, it's also pretty impressive to see now the um, amount of code that's necessary to implement some, some of these features, which is, uh, I mean, these PRs end up being pretty thin and they're adding powerful new ML features um, for uh, uh, what appears to be fairly simple implementations. Like I said, they're building upon you know pretty powerful foundation. But even then, it's not like NX was under development for years. Like this is something that really started in November of last year. Um, 
And yes, they are making use of the TensorFlow compiler. And so they were able to kind of skip that step of it. But I, I, uh, I don't want to keep coming back to the Elixir fanboy uh, discussion, but it is pretty impressive to see how, uh, how in Elixir, someone that is uh, competent in it can do the work of what usually takes teams to do in other languages, right? And so um, kind of outside of the compiler work for TensorFlow, all the implementation side, I mean, that was teams of people at Google implementing it. Yes, in some way they were uh, implementing something new. And so there's the complexity involved of having novel work going on and the kind of the learnings from that. And so uh, Jose and Sean et al are able to kind of benefit from having that work done, done already. But I mean, they're doing their own thing too. Um, and so it's a, uh, I think that's a um, undervalued value in, in Elixir is that sometimes uh, you don't need as large of a staff to implement something analogous as you'd be implementing elsewhere. Um, so kind of where I wanted to go with the discussion though, is um, uh, how realistic is it for the everyday Elixir engineer to be expecting to write things, uh, write machine learning code? And um, from what I've seen, it, I, I still don't think that's going to be happening. I think that having a uh, having the fast um, calculations is definitely something that the everyday Elixir engineer can be using, um, so that they're not having to like go out to Rust or some sort of uh, NIF solution. And that's great. Um, having this machine learning uh, effort happening in Elixir, I'm sure is a uh, door opener for those that have been maybe on the edge of learning machine learning. And so now that you know they know Elixir, there's a machine learning option for them. Maybe they'll go ahead and be able to learn uh, machine learning and uh, become competent in that way. For me, though, I always uh, tend to look at it as okay, you know, it, something becomes interesting when it becomes usable by the common developer, and like, that's what we saw for you know the rise of web frameworks. You know, web frameworks kind of made the the effort of building out a web application trivial um, and approachable for for many and software developers that otherwise weren't able to do so in the past. And if you go back to, you know, early days of PHP, of Java, um, I mean, these frameworks, there, there was a reason why it was taking so long to put out a simple blog system back then, because the the, the complexity and the kind of the, the nuances of languages and you know, just the, the software engineering acumen that was required to do so was very high. And then comes along Rails and makes things, you know, simple and approachable. And that's why, you know, we have all this, uh, explosion in innovation and such. And so I'm still waiting for a higher level abstraction of machine learning in any language, not necessarily Elixir, that is kind of like the same uh, aha moment for many engineers where they're like, oh, I now I don't need to learn like linear algebra and you know all this, uh, I don't need to know what's going on under the hood in order to implement my own ML system. Um, Sean is working on a, uh, his own abstract layer axon, um, but from what I've seen, it's still not high level enough. It's definitely higher level than what exists in NX, but it's not high level enough where it's going to be a 
uh, a tool set used by the everyday uh, software engineer. I think that you still have to have a background in machine learning in order to, uh, to use it effectively. So um, that's kind of where uh, I'm at. I, uh, I applaud the effort on Elixir front. I think it's a huge value add for Elixir. And it's definitely one of those things that we saw in the survey that people were saying, hey, I wish that Elixir had this. And now it's closing that gap. So it's going to be one less reason to not use Elixir. Um, but at the same time, I still see it as being the domain of a subject matter expert uh, in, in machine learning in order to be effective um, with Elixir NX. Thoughts? For me, for me, I think it's great how the how the ecosystem is is growing, and that you have like a lot of options if you want to to build some things that, as I remember at the beginning, like that was a concern. Like, okay, I could do an API with Phoenix, and that's all. And yeah. Maybe which is the value to learn this, this technology or, or stuff like that, but I mean it's 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 quite impressive how how the ecosystem has grown a lot and you have a lot of tools now to use and yeah I, I think now is is there is no an excuse to start using Elixir right in build more things yeah. yeah yeah like that that's that's what's uh that's the definite value add of having this because it kind of keeps people in the elixir system like we've seen i've definitely seen projects that will migrate away from using elixir over to um uh, over to python just because of machine learning like they want to remain in that stack they want to hire uh python engineers well they want to hire engineers in the language that their ml system is implemented in and so having this kind of keeps people in the Elixir camp, and that that's definitely good. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of uh, really beneficial, um, well, I'll say side benefits to to this. Like I said, the the fast number crunching uh, will be one that doesn't really require you to do any machine learning. It's just that now we have fast number crunching um, in in Elixir. And on top of that, we have a distributed system, and so. You know, you can distribute all that work across several nodes, have them all uh, using the TensorFlow compiler, get the fast, actually there's multiple compilers at this point, <clears throat> but you can get the fast number crunching. So that kind of defeats that argument on why not to use Elixir. Like that, that was a consistent one I always see on Hacker News over the years, like, yeah, but it's not really good at, you know, floating point arithmetic. Like, okay, that's no longer, you know, a concern. Maybe it's not, still not the best, but it's like, orders of magnitude better than it was before. Like, to the point where it doesn't, it's not worth it to rewrite in something else anymore because that that gap between where Elixir can be now and where like the top tier like number crunching is is not that large. Um, the um, uh, the the other side of it too is I'm I'm really hoping that um, it's going to start to attract more of the academic machine learning field because like all the other machine learning implementations and other languages were kind of in the same vein as like the python stuff right in many ways they would just write their own kind of wrapper around the they still send things out to python 
Um, but with some of the um, uh, ways in which the beam works, I, I'm hoping that this is going to um, catch the interest of um, uh, academia for machine learning because they're gonna say, oh, there's like some new possibilities for how we're doing these calculations now that we get to write on the beam rather than just writing you know, through a normal uh, imperative programming language. Um, so that 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 will be really interesting to see. Areas that I think that um, still need a lot of work, like their data visualization is definitely one. Um, like Python has, um, I think it's GNU plot, if I'm remembering correctly, but uh, basically taking all your statistical data that's coming out of um, your, your ML calculations, then being able to plot them you know, on the graph properly. There, I'm not gonna remember the name of it, but Jose had one library in mind. Um, it wasn't a Elixir-based library. It was just a more modern looking version of GNU plot, I believe, that already had Elixir bindings made for it, but I, I can't remember the name of it. Um, but in any event, having more of these areas covered, I mean, we didn't even talk about Livebook either. Like Livebook, Livebook's absolutely huge for that. Um, and that alone, um, uh, the uh, um, the amount of people I saw in Hacker News that were just blown away at, um, number one, how quickly Livebook came out on the heels of NX. And then number two, what you can do with Livebook, because you get um, a lot of uh, uh, nice benefits from having it be running on Phoenix underneath the hood, which is you're going to get collaborative editing. Um, you're going to get uh, like all that code running super, super fast. Like if you've ever run a, um, a Jupyter notebook, um, sometimes the, you know, running the code itself, you know, it's like, okay, press the button, wait, 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 wait. Okay. Now it's starting to run. And with Livebook, it's like, it starts running like as soon, like before you even done pressing the button, like it's, it's super, super speedy. So um, kind of, you know, twofold, uh, adoption effort there, right? So you have those that are already in the Elixir space and giving them an, a reason to stay there because these tools now exist in Elixir as opposed to having to go elsewhere to get those tools. And number two, chipping away at the um, at the ecosystems and other languages and offering a, um, a value prop that they don't have in certain aspects uh, to come and check out Elixir. So I, I think that um, you know, usually takes, you introduce something, people go, wow, wow, wow. But now we're going to have to wait for some early consumers of it that are going to tell their success stories. Um, I think they really start to see the adoption, but I'm, I'm pretty excited to see who does something with this and, you know, what it is that, that they can do and have them talk about, okay, this was something that would have cost us X to do in a different language. And, was uh you know so there's not just a good engineering reason but there's a good business reason why why we decided to go with the elixir implementation i think it's just a matter of time till we start to get those stories i think to to go back to one of the things you said uh brian about you know nx being nx being for um for subject matter experts on on that and but not not necessarily for the for the average elixir engineer 
And so my my immediate question is, okay, how do we how do we how do we how do we bridge that? What are, what are the what are the ways that um, that your average Elixir engineer can benefit from NX? And you know, like you said, yeah. the uh, number crunching is one thing, but like the more the more things we can brainstorm on that and make uh, maybe there's some some open source uh, things that we need to get out there to, to to bridge that gap between some things that people normally do. But hey, if you did it with NX, it would be uh, yeah. Well, I, I think there's definitely, I mean, there's an education piece as well, right? So um, people hear the word tensor and they're like, oh, that sounds very different from what I've ever heard before. But then, you know, you figure out that, oh, a tensor is just like a group, like a grouping of numbers. It's like it's not, yeah, it's just an array basically of numbers. It's not, yeah. you know, it's just like engineers giving a crazy name to something. It, so it, it becomes more approachable when you start to, uh, break down what the concepts are in the things that engineers are already familiar with. So um, I know that we had Sean do a guest blog post um, on Dockyard's blog for uh, some of those uh, basic ideas in NX. Um, I uh, I know that Hans. I don't I don't know if that's come out yet. Has Hans's blog post on tensors come out? Because he was doing a um, one as well, I should probably be paying more attention to the Docker blog. But um, I know that Hans is working on one. But I think, like right now, where things are, there's probably an appetite for a lot of those uh, entry level um, con content um, blog posts on just like here are the basics. Like here's the here's the fundamentals of what these things are. Like you don't even have to get into like okay, how do we build out an image classifier like don't even need to do that yet like you can talk about like okay here's why we have a need for an outside compiler here's how to hook up the outside compiler here's how to get this running here's how to get that running you know if you kind of give people uh the foundational stuff because that's usually the blocker right they try to like install something like ah it doesn't work like i can't i, I can't move forward but if you, you not to say that the installation instructions on the projects aren't good, but I do find sometimes, especially on projects that are uh, moving fast, these things sometimes break. Um, not to say that our blog post would keep up with it, but I, I just think that there's something there with helping people be onboarded to it and um, uh, getting them to a point where, okay, now they're past the entry level, like, Here's how to get up and running. Now that I'm up and running, I can take these code examples and bring them in and start to dissect them and figure it out for myself. Um, you know, the the vocabulary, like with the, tens, uh, the term tensor, the vocabulary of machine learning is probably an important one too. Um, just breaking down all the terms because there's, um, like Jose and Sean are definitely using uh, idiomatic, like machine learning vocabulary in quite of many places. And it's like, oh, I have to, look this up every single time. But if there was kind of one area, if it's just a, like a Docker blog post, like here's all the uh, machine learning NX vocabulary that, that's being used. And here's the uh, analogous term in like pure Elixir, like tensor array <laughs> or list, you know, here's a, here's a list of numbers and so on and so on. Um, it kind of makes it, uh, it turns it from something that's like opaque into something that's approachable.
Well, I th- so I think uh, there's that. I think there's definitely getting getting people more into you know the the terminology and understanding what's going on under the hood. I guess I'm kind of thinking like you know for so for example, right now I'm working on a project that that has to do with music and artists, right? And so let's say I didn't really know anything about NX, and I wanted to and I wanted to say to you know one thing that machine learning can do is is come up with suggestions. You're following these people, and this is the data. Um, Here's who you should follow, and I'm thinking like a. I don't. I don't want to know what the tensor is. I don't want to hear the word tensor. I don't want to hear NX. I don't want to hear any of that. I just say, I I've got I've got these these people that follow this these artists, and I have this person that's following this artist. Who should they? Who else should they follow? Like I'm thinking like like dumbed down like public public API oh, like a suggestion. Yeah, yeah, right. So so that's one that's one one possible way that someone who's just working on another project. Could use ML and use NX, but not have to know what a tensor is, you know. Right. And so that's right. basically a suggestion, some sort of suggestion, um, you know, black box, like yeah. stuff, and get it out. So from, different ideas like that. From what I understand, like a lot of that comes. So they're like on the on the Python side of things. Um, there are uh, sites out there that host pre-trained models, right? And so the a lot of the uh, I think the knowledge around how the ML system works is have knowing how to go and train your model in order to be used. But if you're importing a pre-trained model on something, maybe it's not like as perfect as you know you need to be for your use case, but it's going to be significantly better than, than any, like if you wrote just an algorithm. Um, bring in a true pre-trained model and then have, you know, putting your data through it and getting the result. That's kind of where I, I think a higher level abstraction might land for this. And I've talked to Sean about that. Um, so there's kind of like two paths forward. There's one, which is, can they repurpose the pre-existing uh, like Python or other language implement, implemented pre-trained models that are out there? Um, Sean thinks that they could, like there could be an import um, and probably conversion process for taking in some of those pre-trained models. Um, and second would be uh, an ability to export your uh, Elixir trained models and then hosting them somewhere. And I kind of suggested Hex as the obvious place, but um, I that may not work because apparently these trained models can get very large in size, like sometimes well approaching over gigabyte if you're uh, trying to get something like really, really fine-tuned. Um, and I just suspect that, I mean, Hex exists because of financial support and a lot of that's probably, you know, just the hard drive space. So, you know, starting to upload pre-trained models is just going to explode that. Um, but I, I think that there is probably opportunity in some way where uh, someone could do some sort of hosted, uh, whether it's, exported from Axon or maybe even some higher level abstraction at some point, like hosted pre-trained models. Cause then at that point you get what you want, Mike, right? Like, so you have, um, you have just like a how to, like how to implement a suggestion engine, like write this bit of code, download this pre-trained model, plug it in. And then just, you know, you have your API and you send your data over to it and get it out. And that, that's really where I think the everyday engineer wants to be ultimately. The uh, the copy paste experience, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're gonna, yeah. You're gonna get like you're gonna get one like one percent of the 
population might actually care and dive into NX. But if you can have a suggestion model, you're you're going to pull in a bunch a bunch more people that that maybe they weren't even thinking about doing that. But they're like, hey, Elixir, you know, a couple lines, I can I can add a suggestion thing, no problem. Um, you know, that that would be that would bring more people in. Yeah, uh, one downside of a pre-trained model is it might be it might not be relevant to your data. So on, on the project Mike's working on, there's a specific set of artists on this platform. So if it were suggesting artists that aren't on the platform, that wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be good. So there would be some need for just like, hey, here's here's my data, give me some output. Um, I think another piece is uh, like there's there's coming at it from the bottom where it's like here learn these concepts. But coming at it from the top is is like, what situations call for this kind of stuff? What kind of situations can I, as a regular developer, be on the lookout for? We're like, oh, this would be a good place to plug in NX or machine learning, because um, like I had a cool experience some years ago where I I, I ran across an article on full text search in Postgres. Oh, I'm going back to databases, and I was like, oh, this looks cool, but I don't have any use for it. But I bookmarked it, you know, and then a couple years later. I was like, oh, this is exactly the time that I need it. And I went back and I was able to implement this feature using this this uh, this you know technique and it was just awesome. And, and so just kind of having stuff on your radar of like, if I saw this kind of problem, I would go to this kind of solution. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I I think ultimately being able to train your own models uh, is gonna give you the best uh, possible outcome. Um, I think where Mike's kind of landing though is that there needs to be some sort of like in between for those to take advantage of the power of a machine learning without having to understand everything about it. And maybe there's just gonna be some people that just wanna get it done. Like I need a better suggestion implementation and um, what form that comes in. Maybe even then you'd have some abstract uh, layer for even training your data, right? So if you just have, um, uh, you know, someone releases their own hex library, you know, suggestion model. Um, it doesn't include any pre-trained data, but then it includes a way for you to actually send in your production data to train your model without, again, having to understand, you know, what's happening under the hood. That Those are some areas where I could see, um, you know, the mass adoption of, uh, of this stuff. Um, the um, uh, outside of like, you know, some mega corporation, like if Discord was gonna, I, I see them having the, you know, the depth the depth of bench to be able to, you know, have their own dedicated ML engineers to do, you know, whatever it is. Um, but, you know, where we see mass adoption of these technologies is when, you know, a startup is able to do it and not have to, you know, pay to bring on an ML expert or, um uh just any other consultancy is able to start mixing these things into their offerings in some way um and that that's i think the sweet spot where um the technology wants to be yeah and without i mean i don't know really anything about machine learning yet but one of the common things i see in successful abstractions is that sort of the escape hatch pattern like for example mm -hmm. And Ecto, you can write all kinds of queries using Ecto, but if you can't do what you need to do with Ecto, you can always drop down to a SQL fragment. Um, yeah. And and you know if you can't do what you need to do in Live, you can always drop to a JavaScript hook. 
And there's, so that kind of pattern really works well. And so if there was something like this, what, what we're talking about, where just drop in my data and give me back the suggestions, if you can implement it that way, and then somebody comes on your team and is like, actually, we could tune these parameters and it would make your thing better because I'm, right. I'm an expert. In, as long as it gives you that way to, you know, if you need to, you can drop into that. That would yeah. be that would be ideal. Like I think that the the te the litmus test for it is, could you, you know, could you implement this within a uh, Phoenix frenzy like time frame, right? So like, you know, if if uh, now I won't say where if when Dockyard does another Phoenix frenzy, <laughs> um, you know, machine it'd be interesting to see if anyone's able to make use of. Um, of uh, uh, machine learning capabilities in the future, um, the uh, but that, again, that would only be possible if their ability to integrate it and get something out of it is going to be relatively fast. So, so we are we suggesting a machine frenzy next instead of a machine frenzy? frenzy? Yeah. Well, there's um. I, I was unaware of this. It was uh, it's an Erlang specific forty eight hour competition. Um, oh, I wish I could remember the name of it now. Maybe Francesco uh, tweeted it, but it was um, I literally just saw it last week, and I meant to stick it in the dockyard channel. Um, all right, this is going to be like dead air for a minute. Let me just. Uh, let me see if I can find it on Francesco's Twitter stream. But I um, I never heard of it before. And I looked it up. And I guess it hasn't happened for two or three years, but it looks like it's like the fourth or fifth year of it happening, which was uh, like, oh, I, how come I'm completely unaware of this contest? Um, Spawnfest? Spawnfest, yes, that's it. Spawnfest.org. Um, so I think I saw that it was happening over multiple years, right? Where did I see that? <clears throat> so, I mean, it's the same. Okay. Yeah. So they, it goes back to 2012 and it looks like they haven't done one since 2019. Um, they had 2012, 2017, 18, 19. No, oh no, they did 2020. I have no idea why I, I never heard of this until last week. Like, it seems like it's been ongoing and, Maybe when they saw Phoenix Frenzy, they're like, "Oh, what the hell!" But it, um, have you guys heard? I mean, it sounds like Gustavo has heard, heard of Spawnfest. Have you guys heard of Spawnfest before? I've seen the name somewhere. I don't. I didn't. Don't know that much about it. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what the participation is because um, I'm not really seeing. Maybe in the previous years, I can see. Uh, <clears throat> I mean. Well, this kind of seems lame. They, uh, I don't say lame, uh, suspect. So they had a uh, hardware section and Frank was able to enter. The uh, creator of uh, nerves. <laughs> so that doesn't seem necessarily fair. Um, but in any event, um, we got, I need, okay. So um, that also exists, but I, I do think that there, uh, there should be probably another Phoenix frenzy at some point. Totally agree. Sorry, that was a very 
it was like three minutes of me meandering to get to a very simple point. No worries. Anybody have any uh, final things you want to say? Uh, I need to learn machine learning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and COBOL. Yeah, COBOL, right. I need to work for a bank for yes. a few years. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, it's been uh, it's fun chatting. It's been fun. I can't even talk. It's been fun chatting with you guys. Um, and uh, let's do it again before too long. All right. Sounds good. See ya. All right.